my wife Jennifer and I are about to celebrate our 12th wedding anniversary here in about a month. We were, we were uh, married June the 3rd, 2006 in Meridian. And I can still recall, I mean, like it was yesterday, that nervous, joyful feeling of standing at the front of the church, waiting for those doors to open up and for my bride uh, to come uh, down the aisle. I was wearing a $63 tuxedo rental. <laughs> and here Jennifer comes in this gorgeous white dress. That thing must have cost $200 at least. I don't know. Um, but we came together and we took our vows and it was wonderful. But we didn't really know what we were getting into. And that's the thing about marriage. Nobody really knows what we're getting into. We're, when we stand at that altar, we're committing ourselves to an uncertain future together. Some of it's going to be easy and sweet. Some of it's going to be difficult and even excruciating. And that's why the minister makes you promise for better or for worse, right? That's not an accident that it's in there. You will do it in good times and in bad. And it's also one of the reasons that God created the institution of marriage, because it gives us a real-life picture of covenant faithfulness. This is what it looks like to really love someone for the long haul. See, God has covenant faithfulness toward us. God is faithful to you for better or for worse. Aren't you glad? And marriage is meant to be a tangible reflection of that kind of love. The problem is, of course, we're sinners, and we marry other sinners. There's no way around it. We're sinners who marry sinners. And so the Bible can't simply tell us what marriage is supposed to be. The Bible also has to tell us how it's done. The Bible has to get down into the dirt with us and deal with us in our sin if we're going to make this thing work. And so the question is, what makes for a good marriage? There are a lot of places in the Bible we could turn. We're going to look chiefly at just one place. It's like one facet of a gem, okay? We're not going to see the entire picture today, but we're going to see something that is really significant according to the Apostle Peter when it comes to what makes for a good marriage. So if, you are, uh, if you're married, this is going to be very helpful to you today. If you're not married, I want you to lock in here. This is not exclusive information here. This is truth from the Bible that, that applies to all of us regardless. Peter first goes to wives. We're going to look at wives today, and then next week we'll look at husbands. And so before we get into the text that I read, I, I just want to give us some context here. This is really important in understanding what's going on here. Peter is not writing a magazine article for us, Five Steps to a Better Love Life, okay? It's not, he's not aiming at simply helping us have better marriages. He's aiming at a root issue that goes deeper than that, and he's speaking into a specific circumstance. If you've been with us, we're walking through 1 Peter. This letter was written to the persecuted church. These were people who were being marginalized for their faith in the midst of their, the Greco-Roman culture of the day. And so Peter knows that he's writing to hurting and vulnerable people. And in the midst of their pain, he's encouraging them to root their lives in Jesus and fix their hope on Jesus and then live that out in the everyday stuff of life. Okay, So we understand that he's writing to a vulnerable church in the midst of an unchristian antagonistic culture. He's writing even specifically to vulnerable servants who are under the rules of their masters in 1 Peter 2. And then seemingly out of nowhere in 1 Peter 3, he starts to talk about marriage. And the question is why? Why does Peter address marriage? 
Well, you notice he spends six verses on wives and only one verse on husbands. I realize how backward that is. We men typically need a lot more spelled out for us than women do, but he gives much, much more information uh, and, and, um, and encouragement to wives here. And there's a reason for that. It's because wives, women in particular and in general, um, are the more vulnerable party in a relationship. That's just historically true that women throughout all of history have been more prone to be the object of abuse and harassment and, um, and being cast out and divorced. Men have typically had the upper hand throughout cultural history, right? And Peter's writing into something very specific here when it comes to women. He's speaking to vulnerable people who are in relationships that by nature make them vulnerable, okay? And that's really important for us to understand because frankly what Peter says can be very confusing, it can be difficult. And so we're going to walk through it together here, understanding that broader context. Verse 1, he says, in the same way, in the same way what? In the same way that he's calling all Christians to be submissive because of the glory of God, he says, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. Uh, the way Paul says it in Ephesians 5, he says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, right? Higher virtue and stake. And, and Peter says, submit to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So the command is, on the surface, it's pretty simple. He says, be submissive to your husbands, even in cases where your husband is not a Christian, Peter says, in the hopes that your behavior, the behavior of the wife, will lead her husband to faith in Jesus. And that does happen, by the way. It happens probably more than we think. This is a radical command, we look at this as radical, but probably not for the reasons that we think. When we read this 2,000 years after it's written, we think, oh man, that's, we might have a visceral response to that. Well, people in the day that Peter wrote it would have had a, would have had a, a radical response as well, but for a different reason. Because telling wives to be submissive in our culture, well, that's oppressive, and that, that's, that's demeaning. And that makes the woman inferior to the man, and we can't have that, right? That's, that's maybe how our culture would view it. But I want you to think about the culture of Peter's day, okay? I mentioned this, the Greco-Roman culture. Um, it was a culture that marginalized women, that in a sense despised women and treated them as second-class citizens. This may be hard for you all to hear, but I'm going to just quote you. The, the, this is how culture operated in the time that Peter wrote this letter, okay? This was the dominant view, quote, the dominant belief was that the woman was by nature inferior to the man because she lacked the capacity for reason that the, that the male had. She was ruled rather by her emotions and was as a result given to poor judgment, immorality, intemperance, and wickedness. She was untrustworthy, contentious, and as a result, it was her place to obey. That was the culture into which Peter's writing. That was, the, that was what people believed and how people behaved. In other words, women were no more dignified than slaves or children, and therefore they had to be put in their place. A woman, because she lacked the ability to reason, isn't that funny to think about it? That was the belief. She lacked the ability to reason, and therefore she was not only ignorant, but she was immoral. She couldn't be trusted. Women weren't allowed to testify in the court of law. That was their place in this society. But you know, along came Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but Jesus Christ in the Gospels, when we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus spent an inordinate amount of time with women. 
it's really fascinating to see how much time he spent with women, and not just with dignified women. He spent time with prostitutes, with demon-possessed women, with social and racial outcasts, with diseased women. Jesus spoke with them on their level, eye to eye. He healed them. He forgave them. He gave them equal dignity as with men. Jesus did not operate by the status quo of culture. He did not put women in their place. We never see him do that. He, he elevated them. He called them daughters of Abraham. That wasn't even a term that was used. You could be a son of Abraham if you were a Jewish man. He called women daughters of Abraham. It didn't make any sense to the culture, but that's how Jesus operated. And later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, when he speaks of male and female relationships, he says, in Christ there is neither male nor female. Meaning there are no longer, uh, there's no longer a hierarchy of dignity and value and worth. If you are in Christ, then there is no such class system for us any longer. Women are held in equal esteem with men because of Jesus. We're going to see this next week. Peter says it in 1 Peter 3, 7, that wives are fellow heirs of the grace of life along with their husbands. There is no inferiority in the Christian faith when it comes to gender. We are elevated in Christ to equal status. That was an absolutely radical thing in the culture of the day. We may look back on, on some of the things Peter's saying and say, oh, that's, that's so regressive. But we have to understand it was actually revolutionary. And it still is. It still is. Okay? And so when Peter calls wives to submit to their husbands, verses 1 and 2, He's not playing along with the status quo of culture. He's not saying, know your place. Not at all. He's actually calling them to the higher virtue of submission to God for the sake of your husband. Do you notice how he does that? You're submitting for the sake of your husband, not because you're inferior to him. You're on the same level. And in fact, if your husband's a non-believer, Peter's saying, you actually have an amazing power that you're wielding here. You have an incredible influence as his wife because you can effect for all eternity the heart of your husband by living out your faithfulness to God. Peter knows that he's writing to women who are in very vulnerable positions uh, in the larger culture, but even within their home. If their husband should get tired of them, he can cast them off, divorce them, and move on with his life. And there's no repercussion for him. That's the culture of the day. Peter knows that they're vulnerable, but he says, listen, you've got more power than you realize. You've got more influence than you know because you have faith in Jesus. Things are different now. So there's an elevating reality here. It's not submission in, in terms of oppression. It's elevation. There's something new about you, Peter says, and you have the power of Christ to do this. Okay? So what does Peter actually mean practically when he says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Well, that's what he says in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Uh, Peter doesn't say that it's wrong to look nice. That's not his point. But he does warn against being ostentatious. Uh, it's possible for a woman to so decorate herself externally that it almost serves as a substitute for internal integrity. Men can do this too, by the way, okay? 
But we can, we can make it all about the outer person and neglect the inner person. We're trying to teach our children this verse over the last week, the verse that concerns King David, where it says that man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. And that's what Peter is trying to point us to here. And his point is that there's nothing more beautiful or valuable than a woman with a good and faithful heart. No matter what you look like, no matter what your appearance suggests, it's the heart that matters. And ladies, when you're told to exhibit a gentle and quiet spirit, again, don't, don't read our bias into that. We say, oh, here's Peter saying, get in the corner and hush your mouth. No, when he says have a gentle and quiet spirit, what he means is that you are a humble and peaceful person. To be humble in this case means that you're not self-obsessed. In fact, he gives us that contrast. If you're self-obsessed, you're going to decorate yourself and neglect the internal uh, character, right? He says you're not self-obsessed. Rather, you're selfless. You're a person who considers the good and the needs of others before yourself. That's a, that's a godly characteristic. And then quiet does not mean silent. Quiet means peaceful. It means free of gossip, free of slander, free of poisonous talk. You're a person that when you speak, it gives life. You're a fountain and not a drain on people, okay? So that's what gentle and humble and, and, and quiet means. And Peter says these qualities are imperishable. Unlike jewelry and clothes uh, that, that are destined to perish with time, these qualities never do. They never go out of style, Peter says. And they are precious in the sight of God. Uh, that word precious in the Greek language in which Peter wrote it is the word expensive, that this kind of character is expensive to God. Your husband may not always appreciate it, but Peter says God sees. God sees the hidden person of the heart. God sees the, the gentleness, the humility of your heart, the godliness of your heart, and God finds it expensive. He values this more than he values anything else about you. He wants your heart, ladies. And so let me, I'm going to do my best to apply this just a little bit here for us. There's so much we can say about it. But uh, we'll talk more about men next week. But girls, let me just give you a little insight into men before I get some application here. We men, the Bible says that we men, we husbands, are called to be the spiritual leaders of our homes. That's countercultural, but that's what the Scripture says. That's the way God ordained it, that we bear the weight of the spiritual leadership in marriage. And can I just tell you all how terrifying that is to a man? We, we don't bear up under that weight very well, typically. We men, and I, I've heard a pastor say this before, and he's right. We men are basically just fifth-grade boys who are wearing men's clothing, okay? We are, we are insecure. We are afraid of failure. We don't do well when the Bible tells us to hold up the mantle of spiritual leadership in our home. It's hard for us. I'm, I worry every day that I'm not good enough to do it. Okay? And I, I, I probably speak for most, if not all men, in this room. And so, ladies, I just want you to hear me say this. We don't always lead as we should. And part of the reason may be that we're just ungodly, but a big part of the reason is we're scared. I'm scared to fail. Okay? This is a sensitive area for us, not just for you. And so um, I say that to say that even the greatest of men cannot lead a woman who just won't be led, okay? A five-star general can't do this if his wife refuses him 
and, and forearm shivers him every time he tries to come close to her and lead her, okay? A guy can't do it. Um, and, and there's really, you know, if, if a woman will not honor her husband in this way, a man cannot assume uh, what God's called him to be. In, in Proverbs 27, it says that a, con- a contentious woman is like trying to restrain the wind, okay? It, it's like trying to push back the wind. It can't be done. And so uh, the truth is, for, for most men, I think, um, we won't continually try to fight that battle. If, if, if a man gives a woman his heart and she dishonors him and cuts him down and freezes him out, uh, he's not going to keep coming back and trying to uh, live according to the biblical command for him as a husband. He's probably going to tuck his tail and just give in. Okay? Right or wrong, that's just the truth. Okay? And so, again, this is Peter saying, women, you have a lot of control, in a sense, a lot of power in your home, because if, if we're the head of the wife, you're the neck, okay? And the neck is going to control the head. It, I mean, it's really the truth. And you know it. You know it. Okay. So let me just encourage you on a few application points here. How can you honor? How can you submit to your husband? Three things. Two, two, two are simple. One's a little deeper. Uh, the first thing you can do is honor him in private. Honor him in private. Uh, never call him names. Don't call him names in association with his behavior, which means you don't bring up his past failures. Don't keep bringing stuff, you know, into the, into the conversation that he's done in the past. I heard a guy one time say, when my wife gets mad, she gets historical. She says, you did it in 1998, and you did it again in 2004, and you did it again. I knew you were going to do it again. You don't bring up past failures and, and hold those over his head. You don't say, I told you so, when he was wrong about something, Okay. Um, and ladies, we know that we give you plenty of ammunition to work with on this, okay? You don't lack ammunition against us. But there are few things more painful to the heart of a man than when his wife uses his failures against him, when he feels like he has no honor in her eyes. Uh, the whole world may call us failures, but we have to know that you think we're something. We have to know that our wives think we're somebody. And that happens in the quiet, private places of the home. Okay. Uh, second, honor him in public. Honor him in public. Don't make fun of him to your friends. Uh, don't use sarcasm in conversation when you're out and about. Okay. Uh, you may playfully use sarcasm in the home. Okay, that's up to your. That's according to your relationship. But don't say cutting things to him in public because that is that that's a that's emasculating to a man okay and so what do you do instead well you just brag on him and it doesn't have to be big important things you can brag on him in little bitty ways uh tell your kids how great their dad is that's 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 a way that your children will esteem their father is that they will hear you talk about how great you think he is um and it's one of the easiest ways to bless your husband if you honor him in public in proverbs 31 it says that, that, that the husband is honored at the gate of the city because of his wife. He has a good public reputation because he married well. You honor him in public. Esteem is not a natural hormone. We don't produce esteem very naturally. Esteem is something that's given to us. And wives, you can esteem your husband. You have a great power to do that. And then thirdly, and this is, this is deeper. This is not something you can apply necessarily immediately. But ladies, you've got to love God more than you love your husband. And I know that sounds obvious, but listen, your husband is not going to always lead 
spiritually the way he's supposed to, okay? In fact, he may rarely do it in your estimation. But you've got to, therefore, be driven by a higher devotion, a higher commitment. You can't use your husband as the standard. I'll submit to him when he's worthy. He may never be worthy in your eyes. And so you've got to be driven by a higher devotion to God. See, sometimes we make this mistake. We look to our spouse to give us what only God can give us. And this that men and women both. But if a wife looks to her husband to give her her joy, her fulfillment, her sense of identity and security, if she looks to a person to give her those things, she's going to constantly be disappointed. Because nobody can bear that weight. Nobody can be your joy and significance and security and identity. Only God can give you those things. And so you've got to love God more than you love your husband because only God is going to meet you at the place of your deepest need and then give you the empowerment and the ability to obey a scripture like this. On your husband's best day, he's not going to be enough for you. On his best day, you're always going to find a reason not to submit to him. And that's why this command is in here. You can't just submit when you feel like it or when you think he's worthy of it. You've got to be drawn to a higher devotion. God has got to lead you on this or else it's not going to happen. So you've got to love and pursue Jesus first and foremost. Your husband has to be, in a sense, the beneficiary of that, the secondary party here to God. Now, there's a thousand different ways we can apply that. That's just a few. But here's the point. Ladies, this this kind of thing only comes from a heart that is set on it. You cannot decide on a whim to do this. Uh, we, we men know, you got, y'all ladies, you don't wake up in the morning jumping out of bed to honor your husband, okay? It's just not our nature. And men, we'll talk next week about commands that are not our nature as to how we treat our wives. You don't, you don't decide to do this on a whim. You have to have a settled disposition of the heart. It's a commitment that you've already made first and foremost to God and to your husband. And even when it's hard, ooh, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful. That's what it takes. Um, And Peter wants you to be encouraged in this that you're not alone. Sometimes it can feel like you're alone in this as a wife, as a mother. Take a look at verse 5. He says, he, he, he goes back to the Old Testament here. He says, For in this way in former times the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves. Remember the internal person, not the external. Being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Let's not get lost in the language here. Uh, We don't have time to to exegete all of it. But when Sarah obeys Abraham and calls him Lord, that's not a prescription for us. It's, it's It's not like a child obeys a parent. It's not like calling somebody Lord like you're their inferior. That's, it's, it's a linguistic issue here. We don't apply it maybe the way we would think. Guys, don't try to apply this in your house. Okay? You can't, you're not Lord Steve okay? in your home. It's not, it's not going to fly. Okay? Don't even try. Um, the point that Peter's making here is that Sarah, back in Genesis, Sarah honored Abraham over the course of many years and through many, many difficult circumstances. She was 90. He was 100 when they gave birth to their first natural child. They went through the ringer, lots and lots of difficult things, learning to trust God and walk with God, having the weight of the world in in a lot of ways on their shoulders. And she honored her husband for the long haul. Not always perfectly. He certainly wasn't always worthy of it. When it was really difficult, though, Peter says, Sarah honored Abraham, and you are her children 
meaning you have the same heart and the same hope if you do what is right, if you follow in her example. Um, but you notice the very last sentence of verse 6, the very end of verse 6, has always been peculiar to me. I never really understood it until I was preparing for this message. He says, You are her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Why is Peter concerned about wives being frightened? What's he worried that they're going to be afraid of? Well, we said this at the beginning. Um, women, historically and typically, are the more vulnerable party in a male-female relationship, even in a marriage. Um, and there is, frankly, there can be at least reason to fear. Because um, there, there is, and, and men have a bad track record of this throughout history, fear of abuse, of harassment, of manipulation, of criminal activity in the home, of adultery, of being cast out and divorced. And remember the culture into which Peter's writing is shot through with this attitude. Women are second-class citizens. They're not even worthy of consideration. You treat them however you want, and you put them in their place. That was the culture. And so there was plenty for them to fear back then. And, and there, there still is. I mean, there still is. And we have, you, you've, you can't escape this within our culture. There has been a major shift in our culture, I think for the better, concerning uh, the Me Too movement, concerning women who have, who have been victimized and abused in all, all, all different uh, avenues of life, not just in marriage, but there is a rising sense that that's not okay in our culture, and y'all, the church ought to be leading the way in that. If there's an issue of morality and righteousness in our culture, the church ought to be first and foremost in it. And so when Peter says, you submit to your husband, but don't be frightened by any fear, he recognizes what he's calling women to do. And so do I as I stand here. Okay? And so I want to, let me just take 45 seconds to give you a few examples of what Peter does not mean when he uses this word submission. We need to be very clear, okay? Um, I, there's a lot of different examples here. I'm only going to give a handful, but I hope you'll get my point. If a husband is abusive, whether verbally or especially physically, it is not godly submission to let him get away with it. You don't submit to abuse and just hope it gets better, ladies. You go to an authority that is designed to protect you and potentially to protect your children as well. I will never counsel as a pastor a woman to just grin and bear it when she's getting abused in the home. I want you to know that. It is not okay. That's not submission. If a man wants to commit fraud with his wife's knowledge, if he wants to sell drugs in his home with his wife's knowledge and support, ladies, you don't submit to that. You don't become complicit with that sin and that crime. If, if your husband wants to introduce perversion into your marriage, you stand your ground and you say no. You don't sacrifice your dignity for him and his sinful desire. That's not okay. Um, if a man commits adultery, ladies, don't blame yourself and let him off the hook as if it's your fault and you should have done better. He has sinned. In a grievous way, he has sinned. You don't let him off the hook for that. Now, we could go on, but, and, and the truth is some, some scenarios are just worse than others, okay? But the bottom line is submission in marriage is not a position of inferiority. You don't just grin and bear it because you're less than. And anybody who has ever communicated that to you has done, has done you a great disservice. 
because that is not what the Bible says. Submission is not a cause for victimization. Submission, as Peter says it, as Paul says it, as Jesus talked about it, it is an act of dignity, not of shame. It's an act of godliness. It's something to be revered, not looked down on. And we need to know the difference. And see, whenever I marry a couple, uh, I try to do this. I try to make careful mention of this in my, in my homily, in the, in the sermon, that the ultimate example of submission for wives... Peter takes us to Sarah. She's a good one, but she's not ultimate. The ultimate submission example in the Bible is Jesus. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus was in very nature God. Jesus is divine. He is God. And yet he voluntarily emptied himself. He didn't hold on to his divine rights and privileges, but he poured himself out. He humbled himself. Paul says, and he took on flesh and blood. God became a person. He was submissive. And Jesus became not just a human being, but he became, he became a servant. He said of himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in the ultimate act of submission... Jesus Christ took a cross on his shoulders and carried it to a hill where he was nailed to it and crucified. That was the ultimate forever act of submission of the Son to the Father God. And by that act of submission, he has now given us eternal life. Now, in the course of that submissive um, duty on Jesus' part, did he ever become inferior Did he lose his dignity? Did he forfeit his dignity in the process? No. No. His submission was a loving choice that was made for the greater good of others. He chose it for us. He didn't lose himself in the process, and neither do you, ladies. Submission in marriage is a call, first, to trust Jesus in what Jesus has done for you. Before you ever get face-to-face with a husband, it's a call to trust Jesus. And it's a call to model Jesus in covenant faithfulness to your husband. That you get to walk in the footsteps of Christ in this. It's unnatural, it's difficult, it's countercultural, but it's expensive to God. It's precious to God. Okay? Now let me say this as we close. They're letting me know it's time, okay? I don't have to be on the timer. <clears throat> let me say this as we close, okay? I never understood this before I got married. I understand it now. Uh, if y'all, if you want to compliment a married man, you know how you do it. You compliment his wife to him. Okay? And, uh, and at least here in the South, here's how it's done. You say, Kyle, how did a homely, bow-legged <laughs> son of a gun like you get Jennifer to marry you? It may seem like a strange compliment, but I'm not offended by that. How do I respond? I am pretty ugly. I don't don't know how it happened, but you're right. See, I take great pride in that. It may seem backward, but we men know how sorry we are, okay? And you're complimenting our crown. You're complimenting the best thing about us, and we know it. And so wives, just hear me on this. Your husband didn't marry you because he needed help around the house. He didn't marry you for any practical purpose. He married you because he esteemed you as lovely and as worthy and as wonderful. And he said, I need a lifetime of this, and I can't believe she would love me back. And so he had to lock you up, okay? Because he couldn't believe that you would care about him in return. 
And so listen, the kind of marriage that we're talking about today, this is not some stale religious companionship. Wives submit because that's what you're supposed to do. You know, just grin and bear it, get through it. You know, heaven's coming one day. You just make it through. No, this is not religious roommates who just kind of get together and, and do it for the kingdom, okay? No, this is meant to be a vibrant, joyful, delightful thing. And we ought to refuse to settle for less than that, okay? This is the engine that makes it run. You may not like what Peter has to say today. Men won't, we won't like what he has to say next week, okay? But that's the engine that makes it run, all right? But the joy that comes from it can be immeasurable for us if we'll simply treasure this wonderful gift that God has given to us. It's the gift of marriage. So let's pray. Father, we are, um, we said this, we're sinners who have married other sinners, and so we shouldn't expect perfection, and we really shouldn't even expect half of that when we look at our spouse. Um, And so we thank you, Lord, that you've given us a higher calling here that we are first and foremost children of God. We are devoted to you, Jesus. And, and the, the joys and the growth that come, that, of marriage comes from that higher devotion. And so let it be, Lord, that our hearts are fixated on that truth. We're always going to have ammunition to use against each other, Lord, as to why we shouldn't obey what you've told us to do. And so, Father, you've got to set our hearts to a higher plane here. We've got to love you enough to trust you in this. And Father, I pray in two particular ways. I pray that that where there is right now, potentially, there are are maybe women in this room or, uh, or women by association that we know who are in abusive, problematic relationships. And... um, and Father, they, they may have in mind that submission means victimization. And we pray right now, Lord, for clarity and wisdom and good counsel that, uh, that we would never equate those two things. And that, Lord, uh, women um, who are, are being um, taken advantage of and marginalized that, Father, that they would know, Lord, that you have a fatherly, gracious love for them and your desire is for their good and that, Lord, you would protect them and that, um, Father, if, even if it may apply in this room at this moment, that you would um, make it a conviction of the heart to say no more. Um, that the women in this congregation will be honored and will not stand for abuse. And so, Father, bring great courage in that because it requires much courage. And help us as men. Lord, let us men never, ever put a woman in that position to have to make that decision. But let us as men, Lord, be protectors. Let us take up the mantle of leadership to, uh, to make sure, Lord, that, that no one is ever treated that way on our watch and that we do what is right. But Lord, I pray for probably what's much more common, which is just, just marriage that, that we need your help. We need your grace. We need, Lord, to, to experience. We want to experience that delight and that grace and, uh, and maybe to recapture, Father, what's been lost over time. Um, 
Would you remind us, Lord, that, that um, we, don't, we don't get there um, externally. We can't just polish things up and make them better. Lord, it's, it's an engine thing. We've got to get to the engine. We've got to, to deal with the issue of submission, and we've got to deal with the issue of sacrificial love, which we'll talk about next week. That's what makes a marriage run. And so, Father, would you encourage us in these ways? That this is this is not there are no quick fixes, but Lord, this is uh, more. This is a worthy pursuit for us. This is a worthy pursuit for us, Lord. You have been with us faithfully for better or worse, and Father, it is by Your grace and strength that we do the same. And so, Father, enrich our marriages this morning. Let us be, Father, even in our even in our failures, even in our struggles. Let us be a picture to the watching world, to our children. Let us be a picture of what it looks like to give our hearts to this, Father, for your glory. And I pray, Lord, that all the joy and delight is simply the outgrowth of that, and we trust that it will be. Bless us in this, Father, because we cannot and will not do it apart from you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.